because the best way to explain the contrast between dictatorship and democracy, between freedom and tyranny, is to listen to the struggles of others. Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. You can find all of our past episodes on our blog site at pwnilo.com or by searching for Perspectives with Nilo on your favorite podcast app. The Oslo Freedom Forum is a masterclass conference produced by the Human Rights Foundation and in this episode we report from the recent event which took place in Taiwan in mid-October. This is the fourth time since 2018 that the conference has been held in Taiwan and it has been described by the organizers as a unique opportunity to shine a spotlight on Taiwan as a beacon for democracy. This year hosts an impressive lineup of speakers and an interactive expo. Coming up, we'll chat with Tibetan activist Jimmy Lamo, as well as the founder of Chat for Taiwan and a member of the Taiwan Association for Human Rights. But first, let's listen to some highlights from the opening remarks by Oslo Freedom Forum founder and CEO Thor Halverson. Uh, it's such a privilege to be here. Um, I thank you for attending our event. It is uh, a dream come true that this is our fourth event here in Taiwan. To us, uh, Taiwan is a beacon of freedom in the region. It is a beacon of freedom worldwide. Um, and so it's, it's my privilege uh, to lead this organization. And uh, I wanted to, to set the stage up for what we're doing here. Um, you've just heard from some of my colleagues on this video uh, explaining about the Human Rights Foundation and, and how we do what we do um, and, and why we think it matters so much. To us, Taiwan matters enormously. It's a country that is right there on the border of a massive struggle against a, an authoritarian state that wishes to control it and, mark my words, wishes to take away every single one of your liberties. So the fact that you have voted to spend your time with us here um, is, a, is a signal to us that you care not just about your own liberties, but about the liberties of other people in other places. Because the best way to explain um, the contrast between dictatorship and democracy, between freedom and tyranny, is to listen to the struggles of others. By listening to the struggles of others from other countries, we do two things. One is we educate ourselves about what's coming and what they intend to do in a place like this. And the second is you have an opportunity to see them and to validate their experience because you have something they don't. You have the privilege of living in a free country. Um, and that privilege uh, sometimes leads to confrontation and conflict. But confrontation is far healthier than violence, which is the way that authoritarian governments handle things. So, delighted to open this event. Thank you. These, these speakers have come a very long way to be here. Um, they've worked very hard to, to prepare their stories that they're going to tell you. I'm just preparing you, expect uh, your hearts to be opened, and in some cases, you will be moved, and in some cases, it will be intense and very strong. And so, I ask that you receive the messages that you're going to get, and, and hold them a certain way, and remember, after you leave here today, you can just go along your life like nothing ever happened, or you can decide to join the struggle for human rights. That's Oslo Freedom Forum founder Thor Halverson opening the forum in Taipei recently.
After his talk, he introduced the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Republic of China, Taiwan, Tian Chengkuang, who spoke about the importance of human rights and democracy in the world today. To discuss ways to improve human rights and promote their development around the world, we should always keep two things in mind. The first is that certain human rights are universal. As stated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, human rights are fundamental rights and freedoms that belong to every individual regardless of their nationality, ethnicity, gender, religion, or any other characteristic. This means that everyone deserves to be treated with dignity, respect, and equality. And human rights abusers refuse to accept that civil rights are equal to social rights. And they have pushed this false argument in the United Nations and other international organizations. So have even argue, some even argue that denouncing human rights abuse represents an unwanted form of politicization. We must send a very clear and united message that this is a wrong perspective. The other things to keep in mind is that in today's challenging and complex world, democracy and democratic systems are the best way to uphold and safeguard human rights. And recently, however, examples of a democratic backsliding and the erosion of human rights have been much in evidence. This has included the closing of civic spaces and rising disrespect from fundamental human dignities. Authoritarian regimes are growing in ambition and striving to broaden their malign influence both at home and abroad. Since early 2022, Russia has engaged in an unprovoked and unjustified war in Ukraine. And this act of aggression has violated international law, displacing hundreds and thousands and yielding shameful acts of torture and killing. At the same time, China has continued to suppress people in Xinjiang, Tibet, and Hong Kong. It operates concentration camps, detaining individuals and subjecting people to the very real threat of violence. It brutally subjugates its own society and uses transnational repression to silence critics abroad, exploiting international mechanisms to frustrate any concerted response. And it also harbors expansionist territorial intention in the South China Sea along its border with India and against us here in Taiwan. Despite the threats posted by China disinformation campaigns and the military exercises, Taiwan stands steadfast on the front line against authoritarian aggression. Taiwan itself struggled through a period of martial law, having emerged from those difficult times. We profoundly appreciate the value of living peacefully 
in the democratic society. Ladies and gentlemen, Taiwan is a beacon of democracy in Asia. And the government of Taiwan will continue to champion human rights and the democratic values and do all it can to promote a more open, free, prosperous, and secure world. We believe that with individuals, organizations, and nations working together in solidarity, we can raise global awareness, put an end to the human rights abuses, and protect vulnerable groups. In particular, Taiwan looks forward to working with the Human Rights Foundation to strengthen our network of international human rights activities and collaborate on new projects. The Oslo Foundation Freeman Forum in Taiwan provides a very crucial and timely reminder of the extraordinary courage of the activists, journalists, lawyers, artists, students, and the regular citizens who stand up to human rights abuses. And this event is so important platform for advocating the values and the principle that we all hold so dearly. Together, we will prevail. I wish this forum every success. Thank you very much. Thank you. Some highlights from the opening remarks by the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs for Taiwan, Tian Chengkuang. Next, I spoke with Chemi Lamo, who is the Campaigns Director of Students for the Free Tibet. She describes herself as a community organizer, and she first told me a little bit about her own background. I was born a stateless refugee in India. Uh, and I say stateless refugee because even though I was born in India, the Indian government doesn't give us citizenship. So we're born stateless. We call ourselves refugees, but we don't get any refugee aid as other refugee communities. So I was born stateless in South India and I moved to Canada at the age of 11, um, very luckily because of some of my families who have immigrated there before. And have you ever been able to visit your homeland? No, unfortunately not. I can't go back home. And this is one of the things you mentioned in your talk here at the Oslo Freedom Forum, is that there are hundreds of thousands of Tibetans all over the world and they can't go home. Why is that? Tell us why that is. The Chinese government took over our country, occupied it in 1959, and since then 80,000 or so Tibetans followed His Holiness the Dalai Lama into exile, where His Holiness now resides in India, and many of Tibetans, over 100,000 of us in exile, can't go back home because the Chinese government has completely locked down Tibet. Tibetans inside cannot actually leave because they don't have a Chinese passport. And Tibetans who live in exile can't even enter, even though the rest of the world can somehow enter Tibet for, tourists, uh, for tourism. Tibetans, because our names are Tibetan, the Chinese embassies just very conveniently deny us visas to be able to go back unless we do things that align with the Chinese government, such as denounce His Holiness or um, have to really give up our dignity to be able to go back to our homeland. And why do you think they don't want people to come back? They want people who will toe the lines of the Chinese government to come back, but not people like me who will not speak uh, the lines of the Chinese government, which is all propaganda and lies. Uh, and one of the biggest lies is that they claim that Tibet was always and historically a part of Tibet which is a lie. <laughs> and so they want us to claim that and uh, say that that was the case, which is not true. 
And you said in your speech also that uh, the CCP want to erase the Tibetan identity. And you gave some examples of the type of things they're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about what those things are? For sure. So the Chinese government for decades now have been killing our people, destroying our monasteries, uh, constantly surveilling them inside of Tibet. And I already have explained the visa issue of how they are not given a Chinese passport to be able to travel outside of Tibet or nor for us to be able to enter. And so in addition to that now, for the past decade, what the Chinese government has been doing has been resorting to two most insidious tactics uh, from my perspective. One is that they're separating young Tibetan children from their families. So it's pretty clear that the Chinese government has identified that they're not able to shake up or destroy the faith of the Tibetan people of this generation because their, their faith and spirit remains unbroken unbro whatsoever, right? So they're just waiting for that generation to be either killed or die off so that the next generation of Tibetans that are born are all, even though they're born Tibetan, they know nothing about their Tibetan identity. So they're trying to convert them directly into Chinese little people. Uh, and that's what they're doing by taking away the children from their families. 80% of our Tibetan children inside of Tibet are in colonial boarding schools. This is the same thing that colonizers did across the world as a tactic to erase indigenous communities, right? That's one. And now the other is biometric surveillance. They're stealing our DNA and blood samples. More than 30% of our Tibetan population inside of Tibet have been subjected to that, where now their genetic material is actually already part of the Chinese government's DNA bank and who knows what they're going to do with that. And you mentioned how some of these issues have been raised at the UN um, and, and the Chinese government have given some unusual responses at the UN uh, and you, you countered some of that. Tell us a little bit about, about that as well. For sure. First and foremost, I want to mention the UN has been completely silent in regards to the Tibetan issue for decades now. Um, and only now because of the issue of children, which is such a universal issue, right? Um, the United Nations have finally paid attention to the Tibetan plight. Despite Tibet being ranked the least free place on earth for four consecutive years by Freedom House, um, we have never, up until now, since the blackout, of media and attention for Tibet in the international stage, the United Nations has not paid attention to our plight. But now they have by calling out for an abolishment of the residential style school system. Um, and when they did that, the Chinese government, you know, uh, desperately responded by creating a UN state visit, welcoming some member states to come to Tibet. Um, and again, many, many people have not visited the real Tibet for a really long time. Uh, and all of a sudden these member states get visit, but the member states that got an invite were not folks like Ireland, not folks like Norway, not folks, not democracies that actually celebrate and protect human rights. It was other authoritarian regimes that were friends of China. That's one. And the other is when they were girls at the United Nations, they actually had the audacity to say that the Tibetan language is not capable of teaching math and science to Tibetan children, so that's why they forcefully teach, not forcefully, but they say that they teach young Tibetan children in Chinese language because apparently the Tibetan language is not capable of having math and science, which on stage I told you. I actually said the words in Tibetan, so if the words didn't exist, how would they? So you said they, the Tibetan government have been teaching math and science since 1950 or for, for many? Yes, since the 60s in India. Mind you, we are stateless population and 1959 onwards when we escaped into India and seeked refuge because of the visionary leadership of His Holiness the Dalai Lama he built institutions like education uh, and 
communities that lived in exile in across in, in across India and across India because of these various populations the diaspora communities there were also schools that were built and TCV the one I mentioned specifically is the largest Tibetan exiled school where it's a mostly orphans or semi-orphans because children are sent from Tibet even though the families cannot leave they smuggle their kids outside so that they can get a chance to have an education in an opportunity at life and so these many children are brought up almost um, in like a boarding school but brought up by a community a village that really cares about them and the curriculum is up until grade six I believe everything every subject is taught in Tibetan since the 1960s and continues to be so the case uh, uh, right now. Are there famous Tibetans that we would know in the world who, who uh, have, have achieved things that you know we mightn't associate them uh, with being Tibetan? Are there people we should you would uh, mention to us? For sure, um, of course His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a Nobel Peace Laureate, someone that uh, is one of the most recognized uh, people in the world. Alongside with that, um, we have a whole government that actually operates in exile. We, I like to call it democracy without borders. We are Tibetan people that live in diaspora all across the world, yet we voluntarily pay towards a, a book, a green book, which is not really anywhere, anything like a passport, but it's our own version of staying true to our cause. And then we, with our green book, we vote. Every five years, we participate in a democratic process of electing our Sikyong, which is our leader. And our government and parliament in exile operates off of Dharamsala in India. And so right now, our current Sikyong, his name is Pempatsiring, and our former Sikyong is Lobsang Sange. These are two remarkable leaders of our movement as of right now. And in 20, 2011, His Holiness the Dalai Lama devolved his political powers. And since then, these two leaders have led our Tibetan movement in exile. But of not just people. I think one thing to re recognize about the Tibetan culture is Tibetan Buddhism, right? And also the culture of meditation and neuroscience actually comes from the dialogues that have happened with neuroscientists and Buddhism. And you mentioned earlier that um, if, if, that it's possible to get a tourist visa to visit Tibet. Is that correct? Possible, mostly for foreigners, not for Tibetans. So if if I go to Tibet. Uh, you know, what, what will I see there? I mean, will I see signs of this uh, Chinese government's attempts to, er, to erase your identity? Or is it, is it not that visible to the unknowing eye? I think it would definitely be visible if you are aware of it. Um, if you are blinded by ignorance and uh, are um, susceptible to the propaganda of the Chinese government, which is most likely the case for many tourists who do go there, right? Because the beauty, the scenic views of Tibet is so magnificent that everyone is in awe of it. And that's what they come away from without understanding that the own people of this land cannot enjoy the beautiful nature uh, anymore because of the oppression by the Chinese government. So if you look for it and the fact that now you're aware of most of these issues, I definitely think that you'll be able to see. So what can people do then, maybe apart from visiting Tibet, are there other things that people can do um, around the world who are supporters of democracy, supporters of, of, of Tibet? What can they do to, to raise awareness of this? 
for sure. There's many things that you can do. First and foremost, there are campaigns that are being launched by Tibetans in exile all over. Whether it is political prisoners, whether it is talking about American or uh, companies in the free world that are actively helping the Chinese government to enable the oppression, enable the genocide that's taking place inside of Tibet. There is a lot of things that we can do institutionally. We would love to see the government of Ireland invest in programs where young Tibetans and young Irish uh, folks can come together and talk about what does it mean to be uh, protecting human rights? What does it mean to defend human rights? How can we come together in partnership? You know, as I said, I was born a stateless person. Uh, and I'm very lucky and privileged to have, have had a passport that allows me to travel around the world. Many of my people, most of them, still live in India which means that they're stateless. And leaving India also requires an exit permit. You need visa to go anywhere and everywhere. We still don't have passports to be able to live like normal human beings. And so if the government of Ireland is open to even introducing a pilot project, investing in young Tibetans to be able to come and study in Ireland and maybe even work there, that would be wonderful. Okay. You told us about, you know, the uh, Pei Gallo. Mm-hmm, right. Gallo. Yeah. So, it, that's an expression of, it's kind of like free Tibet or long yes, live Tibet. It's, it's victory to Tibet, translation. However, it's a very common term. And I'm sure that somehow if I can get the clip of you all saying Pergyalo to Tibetans inside Tibet, I'm sure that will really make them happy. Uh, and that's why I wanted everybody in here in our audience to say those two words with me. And I hope that this word, these two words can resound and be sounding off in various parts of the world so that someday Tibetans inside of Tibet can also hear the support that they have in the outside world. Okay. Well, it's lovely to talk with you. Pleasure and uh, thank you for sharing all your insights with us. And uh, we wish you every success in your future work. And thank you. I hope to visit Ireland someday. Please do. With many other young people. Please do. That's Tibetan activist Jimmy Lawo, and we've added a link to her complete speech at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Taipei, as well as to all the other speakers in the Dive Deeper section of our blog, which you can find at pwnilo.com. As well as the many impassioned speeches at the conference, there was also an interactive expo with several excellent exhibits. One of those is called Chat for Taiwan, and the founder of the group, Pin, told me about their purpose. So uh, we want to uh, encourage people to talk about politics and to share different opinions like in their daily life so they don't uh, need to th uh, be stressed to feel they can talk about this. They can, uh, even they have different arguments, then they can still have a good and healthy conversation. And what is different about your application compared to all the other social media applications that exist at the moment? Okay, so we focus more on offline events comparing to like online content. We, 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 uh, we hold uh, offline uh, workshops to make people like feel really involved in the process and they can learn how to uh, have a uh, healthy communication with others with different opinions. So it's basically uh, we want to create more like engaging environment and safe environment for people to have like conversations, like constructive conversation about politics. And can you tell me more about how you do that? Okay, how we do that? Uh, basically, we, we created Chat for Taiwan in uh, 2019, and at that time, it's just a basic idea. And uh, I gather like some people, uh, like-minded like people, and we all have the same goal, and we share each other's experience, and we develop the, some like tools and some guidelines for people to, to use in their daily life. Okay, yeah. and why is it important to do it in a safe environment? I mean. Yeah. Why would it not be safe? 
Yeah. So you know, like in Taiwanese culture, like like we are really like we really care about relationship. So sometimes we would like to protect the relationship more than having a constructive. Uh, conversation when we have different opinions. So people who came to our event, they they are afraid of breaking this relationship, but they still want to have a meaningful uh, political conversation. So they they need some method, they need some practice, and we can like share our experience how to that the conversation uh, ongoing keep going and it's still uh, with a good ending. Okay, and so so this is so people can share their ideas or ask questions without offending anybody or, or upsetting anybody. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, we also think that uh, it's better. I mean, uh, we don't think uh, argument is is something we we need to uh, avoid, but we can have a good conversation even we uh, even we have different opinions. So the most important thing for us is to make the conversation like ongoing, ongoing. So you don't you don't uh, you don't need to uh, how to say. If there's one time like really bad experience, but it won't stop you like to do another conversation like in the future. And on what are some of the kind of hot topics that you have tackled recently? Um, I mean, we we know democracy is big in Taiwan. We know you have a presidential election coming up, but maybe there's other hot topics we we don't know about in foreign countries. What are the kind of hot topics that your your group has helped deal with recently? Recently, yeah, I think the most part would be the the election, like related one. But also, and what kind of questions around the election then? Like who to vote for, what to vote, what do people yeah. say, what do they stand for, those kind of things. Yeah, or people would just think, oh, uh, like like I'll have some conversation with friends or with people who have the same age, and we say, oh, who would you vote for, yeah. or which candidate are you like do you prefer? And they would say, oh, I don't know, or or they just not. They they don't care politics that much, so they maybe they don't even would go to vote. Yeah, so I think that's something I'm 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 personally I I'm worried about. Like people don't really care about, and they just think it's not my business. Yeah, and another hot topic I think would be like uh, fake news and disinformation. Like people think because like we have a line, uh, how to say line? Yes, a, a chat app. Chat, chat app, yeah, chat app. And because like sometimes like we will receive like all different. Information from our family members or from mm. friends, but they are not not correct. They are disinformation, mm -hmm. and I think in my age, like people know that's fake, but they feel that they cannot do anything about it. They would just receive the message and and read and do nothing. But actually, they feel frustrated or they, they feel like helpless. Like okay. they don't know how to deal with this. Like how to tell the parents like this is okay. fake news. So now, if they get a message like that, they feel confused about. How does your your application come into play? <laughs> wow, that's a hard one. Yeah, so uh, so we have a tool, and to to can yes. I? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you have a website or uh, yeah, online we have a yeah. website, and this is a, a content like uh, we, we partner with another organization, mm -hmm. and we uh, we try to break this into different steps for people to understand like how can they uh, apply to their daily life so if they receive something like they are they, they have question about then they can check like who is the person they are talking to like the relationship because yes. relationship is really important in our in our culture and the scenario and like what kind of goal you want mm -hmm. to reach in this conversation so there's different ways and even like you can reply to this person like online or offline like different way based on your like target okay that's excellent so we link that in 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 our uh, in our blog site as well so people can see that yeah. but i also wanted to ask so you, you told me earlier that uh, you're all volunteers you do this 
on a part-time basis? Yeah, so we all have our full-time job. So basically we started this in 2019 until now, like we are all volunteers. Yeah, so it's basically, yeah, we, we just want to promote this to like to share this with other people. Because this, this is, what you're doing is a very hard task, right? It's not easy. So yeah. you must feel very passionate about it. Yeah, I, I would say like from the starting point, it was more anxiety more than passion, mm. I would say, to be honest. Yeah, so so I'm I'm really worried about the the, the atmosphere and the political uh, situation in Taiwan. So that's why I, I started this. Yeah. Are there things that happen in other places you see that cause you to be concerned? Uh, other places? Do you mean in Taiwan? Like other countries in the region? The wars between Ukraine, Russia, and uh, the the stress between China and Taiwan. Okay. I think everything like. All of it. Yeah, would make me nervous. <laughs> yeah, but but I think like by doing something, like doing something concrete, and you yes. feel like it, it really makes some progress. Uh, it felt, I mean, I will feel better because I'm I'm doing something helpful. Yeah, and Good. I think that's also why like I can have so many volunteers like doing this together. How many volunteers in total do you have now in your group? Uh, now there are not much, but uh, in in 2019 when we just started, there are like 20. But now maybe like just five, yeah, yeah. Because like I think people go, come and go, like, yeah. And it's great that you're here at the Oslo Forum, uh, presenting this today. You can get a lot more people to see what you're doing and share your ideas. Yeah, I'm really happy to meet like some new people because like they, they didn't know us before. Yeah, so it's great to meet people here, and I think it's also great to have like different point of views, like to know like oh what people think about this. That's Pin from Chat for Taiwan. And we've added the link to their website on the Dive Deeper section of our blog if you'd like to find out more. The final group we met at the Oslo Freedom Forum Conference Expo was the Taiwan Association for Human Rights, or THAR. And I spoke to Quandro Cho, a digital rights and privacy specialist, who began by telling me about the history of the organization. Uh, in THAR, we founded in 1984, and as everyone knows, at, at that time, is during the martial law, so um, in Thai we do uh, many different human rights topics. And at the beginning, at the beginning we do um, to re rescue people that um, because they are political criminals. That is the beginning. But but now in Thai we do like many different topics. For example, like uh, myself, I'm doing digital rights and especially in privacy in the digital age and and there are many other topics for example like the right of housing and the right of assembly and um, we are ad advocate for the refugee laws because because in Taiwan Taiwan do not have cannot have a law for refugees so when when people they stay in Taiwan and and their countries are been in um, a martial conflicts and they have um, have difficulties to 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 stay in Taiwan. So uh, so you have a lot of migrant workers uh, from from the Philippines and ah. uh, other countries around Asia coming to Taiwan, correct? Yes, yes. But in, in Taiwan, uh, in the migrant workers' rights, we we only focus on the fisher foreign fisher fisher okay. people's rights. And um, are, are there other are there other like challenges that you work on with with the election, there's a presidential election coming up in ah. January. Are there particular things you you focus on 
to make sure the election goes smoothly uh, uh, and things like that from a digital rights perspective. From the, uh, um, and, 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 and my work, I, um, how to say, because I focus mostly on privacy, so, so um, during the e elections, I am, in, in Tar, we have, we have come up with several, um, several questions that we want to ask, ask the candidates, the candidates of uh, presidents and also the candidates for uh, different political parties to ask them what their policy plan they want to camp up to improve the to, to, to improve the um, digital rights in Taiwan. For example, um, recent years that in Taiwan we um, we encounter um, serious data breaks issues, and now now there are some cases. For example, like there is a cases that that of almost all the populations in Taiwan's are uh, national ID numbers, uh, identity data leaks, uh, but still now we, we do not know how how it happens. Okay. So so uh, we hope that and, and currently uh, the legislative union in Taiwan uh, they are and, and also administrative union are are dealing with to. Um, to establish uh, independent data protection authorities, and we hope that the data protection authorities um, have enough resources to make them independent and have um, have the power to do to um, to um, supervise both both from public sectors and private sectors that 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 do to protect that um, protect the data. Uh, because we, we know that uh, privacy is uh, related to how um, how other actors know know about person and especially in uh, democratic countries. So if um, if if our data is not um, is not secure enough, and if there are many um, man, um, bad manipulations of data usage, that it, it also can be used to target people on the internet for spreading misinformation or disinformations to to um, influence people's actions. So we think that uh, Taiwan should, should have a strong data protection reg, um, reg, regulatory framework. That's Quandro Cho from the Taiwan Association for Human Rights, speaking with me recently at the Oslo Freedom Forum conference in Taipei. My sincere thanks to her, as well as to Pin from Chat for Taiwan and to Chemi from Students for a Free Tibet. It was really impressive to hear the intense passion all the speakers and those involved in the various initiatives have for their work. We wish them every success in the future. You can find out more about the topics discussed in this episode on our blog site at pwnilo.com and don't forget to follow Perspectives with Nilo on Spotify, iTunes or your favorite podcast app as well as on Instagram and Twitter. And we'd really appreciate a like or a follow. And that's where we leave it for now. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánax Banach.